ओम ज्ञान चिरंजन शलाका This subject is of uh, tremendous import for people taking to Krishna consciousness in the modern age. For people taking to Krishna consciousness in any age, a scientific approach is required because bhakti is scientific. Bhagavat Tattva. Vigyanam mukta sangasya jayate. We find this word vigyana, which is translated in modern Indian languages as science. We find that uh, term repeatedly in Gita. Jnana vigyana sahitam yajgyadvan. What is it? Jnana vigyana yajgyadvan. Jnana vigyana sahitam yajgyadvan. Jnana Vigyana Mastikyam is again and again we find in Gita that yes, Bhagavatam Vigyanam the science of uh, knowledge of God Mukta Sangasya Jayate by which one becomes free from uh, material Sangha material attachment material association So that is essential in any age, and in the modern age, um, especially in the Western world, and probably maybe in Britain more than in any other country, the uh, the scientific, the modern secular agnostic scientific outlook. Dominates the worldview of the dominates the culture, and probably maybe more in Britain than, than Britain, Northern Europe, maybe more here than any other place, more than America, where there's still a, a hefty admixture of Christianity. Uh, So science, Srila Prabhupada often used this term science, but Srila Prabhupada, when Srila Prabhupada said Krishna consciousness was scientific, he was using the term scientific in a different way to that in which it's ordinarily understood. He used it in the, uh, the Shastric sense, that Science, uh, what, what vigyana means, uh, realization, uh, in, as it's the, the word vigyan, science means realization. And Srila Prabhupada also used it in the sense that uh, Krishna consciousness was not simply a blind belief, but it is to be understood by the intelligence, but by the purified intelligence. This is a very important point. That Krishna consciousness is a science, 
But one has to accept the appropriate methodology. For instance, if you want to understand geology, which is a science, there's no use to bring a Bunsen burner, which is used in another field of science. So one has to know the appropriate methodology or technology. So one can... <coughs> people say, well, can, you can't prove it, but uh, they'll only accept what they can see. But in Bhagavad Gita we find pratyakshavagamandharmyam that this process of dharma can be directly experienced. But there are qualifications by, before one can enter into that. Just like... Uh, <coughs> Atoms are everywhere, so we are told by modern scientists. Uh, but we don't, how do we know? I, unless we have scientists with us who, uh, they know the uh, theoretical constructs by which the existence of atoms are deduced. Otherwise we don't see atoms. Or even if there is an experiment which is conducted to show the uh, existence of atoms, one has to be trained. If you just see it, you won't understand what it is. One has to be trained to understand the import of it and what it shows, what it demonstrates. So there are preconditions before one can uh, understand this. One has to be trained to understand this science. But Krishna consciousness is a science in as much as it is uh, understood not simply experientially, as people sometimes think. Bhakti is simply sentiment. But uh, it is buddhi-yoga. We find this term repeatedly used by Lord Krishna in Bhagavad Gita. Buddhi-yoga. That means that uh, it is to be understood by the intelligence. And Krishna gives that intelligence. Dadami buddhi yogam tam. Krishna gives the intelligence unto persons who approach him in love. Now that love factor doesn't appear in mundane academics. So uh, it is a different it is certainly scientific. It is to be understood uh, by the intelligence. It is to be understood experientially also, which is a fact which modern science has reluctantly admitted that there is no such thing as total neutrality. Uh, but it is a different kind of science altogether. It's a, it's a different worldview completely to that of uh, the modern scientific outlook. Uh, it's just like Srila Prabhupada in the, in the beginning of his introduction to Bhagavad Gita as it is, states that Lord Krishna first spoke this science to the sun god some 120 million years ago. And he just writes it like that. Just like, you know, cabbages are growing in the field next door. Like, like you know, it's just a statement which people are expected to accept. Although, according to the modern worldview, there ain't no sun god anyway. That's just what primitive people believe in. 
And 120 million years ago, uh, I don't know what the current uh, scale is, but there, there, there weren't uh, humans at all. And there, weren't, there was no intelligent life, which is a, a, a singularity which appeared in the singularity that is called this universe uh, relatively recently. So, um, to accept the scientific knowledge of Shastra means actually to make a break with the predominant worldview. Now, this is a very important point to understand in the context of ISKCON today, as it appears that uh, the whole movement, or at least it's being guided into the lap of the mundane academicians. Uh, There's a proposal that anyone who's going to teach in any ISKCON schools, which are still called Gurukuls, although they're not Gurukuls, um, they don't teach what the gurus teach. But maybe they will become gurukuls because the gurus are all going to have to have university degrees before they can become gurus. And, but if you have a, a university degree, uh, then that means you, uh, to write the exam, you have to write answers and you have to accept the methodology and the outlook which opposes Krishna consciousness. The, the two are not mutually compatible. I'm going to, uh, of course this could be the subject of a several part seminar, but I'm just going to go through briefly. Uh, I'm, uh, I've got some uh, material from a uh, textbook from the Indira Gandhi National Open University at New Delhi which uh, it's even though it's from India which is considered uh, intellectually inferior to the West and actually Indians have accepted that too because they consider that higher education is in the West uh, so it follows the uh, Western uh, mode. Actually, India has got the greatest intellectual wealth, but modern Indians, don't mind me saying so, are so stupid that uh, they've rejected the, the, their own culture and are following this monkey culture. It's literally monkey culture, because they say we all descended from monkeys and uh, there doesn't seem to be that much difference in the, in the consciousness, really. I mean, maybe humans are more violent than monkeys, and, and uh, in some ways monkeys, uh, they're better, at least they're vegetarians. So, uh, this monkey culture, uh, the Indians have accepted that as superior. It's unquestionably accepted. So, uh, even though it's from... Uh, a, a uh, intellectually vassal state of, of the Western intellectual oligarchy, um, to use a fancy word, uh, it is fully in accordance with the belief system that is promulgated throughout the world as 
This is the way to understand reality. This, uh, and the fact that our devotees are uh, enthusiastic, not only enthusiastic, insistent to uh, voice this on ISKCON in general is uh, highly inauspicious because it goes against everything that Prabhupada and the Acharyas taught. Prabhupada came to relieve us from the misconceptions which we'd been indoctrinated into since the moment we were born. And some of our dear colleagues want to uh, get us in line with the actual knowledge, or is not knowledge, as Bhaktino Thakur stated, who was also raised in the culture of modern academics. It was modern then, nowadays, but it's the same mindset. So his uh, analysis was Joro Bidda Jato Mayar Bhaibhav Tomar Bhajane Bhadha Anitta Sangshare Mohajangamiya Jeevke Koreye Gadha, which means that uh, mundane knowledge is simply a uh, it's a, a vibhav, which means a uh, it's it, it, something which looks good. <laughs> it, it, Something which it's a how do you translate vibhav? Opulence or a facet, or, yeah. and it has more to do with like glory, glory, grandeur. Yeah, okay. It's a glory of Maya illusion. Dato Maya vibhav. Toma. It is a. It is an obstacle in. Worship of you, Bhaktivinoda is saying, praying to Krishna. Tamar Bhajane Bhadha, in this uh, world of birth and death where everything is temporary, it, in, it gives rise to illusion and converts the jiva into an ass. That is his conclusion. Why an ass? Because an ass carries heavy weights that are of no benefit to him. But he thinks it's benefiting me, because by carrying these rocks all day, I get some grass at the end of the day. But he doesn't need to carry rocks all day to get the grass. So people think that by carrying these all this knowledge, or so-called knowledge, or information around in my head, it's actually beneficial to me. But it's not. It's an unnecessary burden, at best. Okay, so, uh, this textbook, uh, it's uh, Methods in Social Research, so it's meant for the social sciences, and how the scientific method should be adopted in the social sciences. So, uh, today we are reading, not from the Srimad Bhagavatam, but from just the opposite. Scientific Knowledge, the title is Scientific Knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge is a fundamental condition of human existence. Okay, we agree with that. Knowledge, but what they consider knowledge, is, that's the problem. What they consider. She bidda abidda jani, this Bhaktinav Thakur, his 
conclusion is that what is called knowledge is actually ignorance or non-knowledge. Knowledge is an important medium for social and cultural progress of human beings. There you go. There's the very concept that we're making by researching and finding out knowledge, we're making progress for human society. This idea that progress comes by investigating the material conditioning and finding out things to improve it. This is the, this underlying concept that of modern science is, is largely responsible for the mess the world's in today. <laughs> what they think. They want to make the world better. They think they have a better plan than that given by God. Because they don't believe in God. They think, well, there's nature and we can manipulate it for our best good. There was a scientist in America whose name I don't remember. Uh, he was an inventor. So his idea was to invent useful things for the improvement of human society. And when he died, he got a good write-up in his obituaries. So he made some very significant inventions. Uh, he was trying to invent things. Made so Among his inventions were three things which have uh, significantly affected human society. One was uh, the idea to put lead in petrol to stop it knocking. That means if you don't have lead, it, it, it seize, kind of seizes up your system. So this great invention uh, was considered very good at the time. Um, that has called, I mean, largely contributed to the air pollution all over the world. Uh, another was CFCs, which was great for refrigerants and for aerosols, which is uh, the result of which is the uh, depletion of the ozone layer in the world, causing so many problems, skin cancer and climatic change. Uh, and another one was the invention of DDT, which uh, caused, caused the uh, extinction so-called extension of literally thousands of species of uh, some insecticides and also uh, many uh, creatures which are considered useful for human beings and uh, uh, so many people got cancer and various diseases from eating foods contaminated like that. But at the time it seemed very good. It all seemed very good. Progress! We're making progress! But in the long term, it was all of these things were seen to be disasters because the whole idea that we're going to do something better than God is in itself uh, not only unnecessary but it's demonic. Actually. So this whole idea of progress, making progress, and you see now people in modern life, uh, people are all nuts. They're all stressed out and this and that. But never mind. We'll invent some drug. We made, we made this society so it makes you crazy, but we'll invent some drug and uh, make you less crazy. Uh, but of course then they find out it makes you more crazy in the long run. Uh, never mind, we'll build more prisons or we'll just accept crazy as normal. <laughs> That's the easy solution. So, this is the progress of human society. 
Although I believe that many people in the West now, they, they don't think of it as progress. They think that uh, science is a bad word. Right? In India still, science. Oh, science. Science. Isn't that? People in India think science is wrong. If, as I often say, if you say, if you quote in India today, Sri Bhagavan Urvacha, the Supreme Personality of God, said, which previously in India people would, oh yes, very good. They, nowadays they're not interested. If you, if you say, Sri Scientist Urvacha, then they say, oh yes. Salam. So they, they take that very seriously. The acquisition of knowledge in various forms remains the most cherished goal of mankind. However, prior to the rise of modern science, the contents of knowledge mostly contained mystical elements. In other words, mumbo-jumbo. Science has brought the perspective on reality. Now we can understand. The explanation of natural or social events were usually unclear in the past. Why unclear? It just means they don't accept the Vedic version. Over a period of growth of scientific approach, that's Indian English, they still couldn't get their English right, a growth of the scientific approach to knowledge has made it possible to develop a better and sound understanding of our environment. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a better understanding of our environment. Yeah, look what you've done to our environment with all your scientific progress. Life is better by science. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> now the psychology, sociology, we studied, we understand so much. And yeah, look, look at society with it, with the rampant drug abuse. Previously, people could leave their doors open and, and, and just go out. Nowadays, you'd be crazy to do so. Uh, previously, people got married and they stayed married all their lives. Nowadays, they don't, in many cases. The, uh, in, in all respects, society has become more problematic. But they say, oh, we have, by scientific approach, we have made a better and sounder, sound understanding. It's terrible English. Better and sounder understanding of our environment. So this whole this bluff that they're making a better society. Sheila Prabhupada was one of the first to see through this. Actually, I mean, uh, when Prabhupada was saying the scientists they're rascals and all this, uh, that was uh, that was revolutionary at that time. United Nations is just cheating. It's the America is just using it to cheat the small countries. Now everyone can see. But at that time, no one had any vision like that. Prabhupada was, they haven't gone to the moon. It sounded like a, very strange to people in those days. But Prabhupada was ahead of his time. Yeah. So, the scientific approach to knowledge, to knowledge, they presume it's knowledge, although they themselves, later on in this, they'll say that, we, well, we can't really know anything. What we call knowledge is knowledge until we make another discovery which shows that that's wrong. And this way we're improving the knowledge. But as Prabhupada pointed out, it's not knowledge at all. If, you, if you're not sure, then it's not knowledge. And if it's always subject to revision, which so-called science is, then it's not knowledge. It's just what you presume it to be correct. But it's not, if it's subject to change. So the scientific 
approach uh, is grounded on a set of fundamental assumptions. Assumptions, did you hear that word? Science, science, science. Fundamental assumptions. Just see. Ultimately, it's a belief system. They say science as if they're sure, but ultimately it's a belief system. They have certain prem... The world exists. Okay, we, well, we accept that one too. We can know the world with our senses. Now, immediately we're in, we're in uh, opposition to that, because we cannot know the world simply through our senses. The senses are limited. The senses are imperfect. Our intelligence is limited and imperfect. But, but the scientists think that we can know the world with our senses. There is a definite order inherent in the universe, and the occurrence of events has a cause and effect relationship. Yeah, okay, but what's the ultimate cause, as Prabhupada would say? They just presume it's going on without any ultimate. What they don't state here is that there, that there is an assumption in science that there asatyama pratishtante jagadahuranishwaram as Krishna points out the demoniac they presume that there is no ultimate truth no ultimate reality no ultimate cause no God it's an unwritten they don't write it down because to, to state it would actually be unscientific but it is an, it's an assumption it's a very extremely unscientific assumption that there is, even though they say there is order, a definite order inherent in the universe, but how has that come about and why? The, the very best explanation is that someone put it in order. But they consider that to be overly simplistic. Although within the scientific method, simplicity is one of the Factors. If you can find a simple explanation, that should be the best, rather than a complex one. Okay, so cite this again. Running into Indian English here, they're not very good. Uh, resting on such assumptions, the scientific approach helps to discover order from the apparent confusion of events. The scientific approach relies on observation of concrete facts so that true causes of a phenomenon are clearly comprehended. Proceeding with the observation of real and particular events or situation, it ultimately aims to generate general laws or principles. Such general laws or principles must have sufficient potential for explaining similar events or phenomena in time and space. Well, there's another assumption which they haven't mentioned. They assume that there are laws of the universe and that these laws are applicable uh, everywhere in the universe, even in places that we haven't seen, and even in times other than ours. They, they just, it's just assume that if the, if the laws work here, they should work everywhere else too, if, this, if the same conditions are met. Actually, there's so many bogus things. But just try and keep it simple. Now, the accumulation of a systematic body of knowledge through the application of the scientific approach is called scientific knowledge. In other words, scientific knowledge is that knowledge which enhances our entire understanding of the entire empirical world 
the world which is susceptible to human experience. So there's another stupid assumption. They assume that they can understand all of reality through what is observable by us. But why should they, why assume that all of reality is within the scope of everything that we can observe? We have a very limited, uh, we, we can only see within a very limited spectrum of light. We can only hear within a very limited spectrum of sound. Uh, there may be so many uh, phenomena which we're, we have no sensual access to whatsoever. So to assume that we can understand reality through our senses is uh, it's an overly ambitious assumption. The hallmark of scientific knowledge is that its validity rests on direct or indirect observation of reality. Again, an assumption that what they see, as they see it, is reality. It's assumed. Thus the knowledge which has supernatural, spiritual or magical characteristics is not scientific knowledge. So, uh, just taking an aside here, devotees are trained, they have to get to, if they have to get their degrees in a university, then they can't, they can't accept as real anything which is stated in Shastra unless it tallies with uh, that which is considered to be real by mundane academicians. It's all based on empiricism, but uh, empiricism, or, or no, no, it's not so say empiricism. Not, that which is observable is accepted as a form of acquiring knowledge, but it is subordinate to shabda, to hearing from shastra. But this is quite opposite to the academic system of knowledge. So. Again, the two don't mix. Scientific knowledge can be grouped under two main divisions, natural sciences and social sciences. Natural sciences deal with the natural environment in which human beings live. Again, all this emphasis on human beings. For example, disciplines such as physics and chemistry, etc. Ah, Excuse the English, it's horrible English. Which deal with laws of matter, motion, energy or chemical properties of the mind, chemical properties of them, belong to the natural sciences. Included in this division are also disciplines such as zoology, botany, and so on, which deal with living beings. The second major division of scientific knowledge is constituted by the social sciences. I don't think they even got their own thesis right. I mean, what about mathematics? The social sciences are broadly concerned with various aspects of group life of human beings. The scientific study of organized human beings is a relatively recent development. Well, so is your other science. However, a vast amount of information has already been gathered about the social, historical, economic and political life of human beings. The accumulation of such scientific information has been built be used to build a system of knowledge which deals with the nature, growth and functioning of human societies. 
For instance, for example, disciplines such as anthropology, sociology, economics and political science belong to the field of social sciences. So the next is the nature of the scientific method. The subject matter of any scientific investigation can be anything ranging from natural, biological, social to psychological phenomena. However, basic to any such investigation is the scientific method so that knowledge thus generated attains the scientific character. In other words, scientific knowledge is united by the scientific method and cannot be characterized by any particular or general subject matter. Uh, I'll skip through some of this stuff. So, uh, skipping through. The scientific method can be distinguished by adherence to several principles. Um, these principles are objectivity, empiricism, relativism, ethical neutrality, skepticism, and simplicity. So the first one is objectivity. By objectivity it is meant that the scientific investigation of social phenomena, phenomena must not be influenced by the subjective biases of the investigator. Social analysis must be over and above the personal feelings or attitudes of the social scientist. In other words, the process of acquiring knowledge in social scientists, sciences must remain independent of any considerations of race, color, creed, nationality, religion, moral or political preferences. In other words, uh, if one thinks that uh, Krishna consciousness is better than other systems of philosophy, then you can't be a, you can't be a scientist, you can't be a social scientist, you can't properly study society, you can't properly study anything if you're biased towards Krishna, if you have this bias towards Krishna consciousness. So this doesn't seem to be very healthy to introduce into our society in which we're trying to understand how Krishna conscious is the uh, ultimate reality. Vedyam vastava matra vastu. This is the actual subject, the, the actual reality of all knowledge. But if we, uh, from the very beginning, uh, take up the scientific method, then if we take up the scientific method, then, then from the very beginning we reject that any other system of knowledge can be superior. And Krishna consciousness just becomes some sentiment or preference. However, an ideal form of objectivity is difficult to attain in the social sciences since there are always chances that personal or cultural preferences may influence a given social analysis. Thus, true objectivity is hard to achieve in the social sciences because the role of subjective factors cannot be totally eliminated. But efforts must be made to minimize subjective influences so that a near true state of objectivity is attained in the social sciences. So one should be uh, objective, not have any preferences, not have any uh, preconceived notions, which is actually completely impossible, because the, accepting this, the so-called scientific method in itself is a bias. 
And it's, it's based on so many assumptions. So it's self-defeating. The so-called scientific method, as it's being outlined here, is self-defeating. Empiricism. The second important characteristic of the scientific method is empiricism. I would actually, if I was writing this, I'd put it first. It means that a social investigation must be conducted empirically. In other words, our views about some or other aspect of society must be based on clear and definite factual evidence. Uh, they bring in the, just now they spoke about objectivity, and now they're talking about views. Strange people. Such evidence must be pr- produced by observing the relevant social reality with the help of the human senses. Sight, hearing, taste, smell and touch. Nothing is left to speculation. By speculation they mean uh, that includes taking knowledge, in their definition that means taking knowledge from a higher authority. That there is absolute knowledge which is given by an absolute person they don't accept. We are just here in the universe and we are looking out and we are finding out what's going on. It's not very intelligent actually because if you consider this universe, they accept this definite order, so they should accept that someone made this definite order for a definite purpose, and that we have a a tendency to try to understand that order, it suggests that we can understand it, and that the supreme orderer has given us a system of knowledge by which we can understand how this universe is going on, and what is our role in it. In other words, that there is scripture given by the Supreme Person which explains the workings of the universe and our role in it. And succinctly, Krishna states in Bhagavad Gita, Maya Dhyakshena Prakriti Suyate Satcharachara Etunani Nakuntiya Jagadri Paribhatate. Krishna explains that this whole universe is going on under his supervision. And uh, all beings, non-moving, he is is the cause of all living beings, uh, of all beings, moving and non-moving. So, uh, it is quite reasonable to accept that there is a supreme controller, and that we can understand from, by taking knowledge from him, how the universe is going on. Otherwise, our attempt to understand, it's something like an ant crawling around here. If there's, a, if there's an ant crawling around on the floor, the ant has the ability to sensually perceive. But the ant's ability... Hare Krishna. Please come Uh, do you need a seat? Do you like a seat? Do you need a seat? You're comfortable on the floor? Okay. Keep a seat there just in case. So, um, yeah, you young boys can fold your legs. Better you sit on the floor, otherwise you'll get prematurely uh, stiff joints. 
So actually it's very reasonable to accept that there's a supreme controller. But because they're atheistic and demoniac, they don't accept that. And they call that speculation, superstition, and they only accept his knowledge, what they accept. Yeah, that example of the ant. The ant is perceiving, but what the ant perceives is extremely limited. The ant may be crawling here, but the ant cannot understand that this is a building, it's being built for a specific purpose, what we are all doing here. The ant has senses and the ant has intelligence. But the ant, despite having senses and intelligence, is incapable of understanding the broader reality all around him, because he has limited senses and limited intelligence. So similarly, in, in comparison to the vast universe, we are tiny living beings who can only, ob- just like the ant can only observe a tiny, uh, a tiny uh, area. And that also from the ant perspective, because the ant's interest is to find a grain of sugar and get it back. So we also have our, tin- our tiny spectrum of interests. So within the universe, we are like little ants. How much can we understand of what's going on and why it's going on? Therefore, the system of taking knowledge from persons on a higher platform of knowledge and consciousness and is a much better methodology for getting knowledge. And to, to say that, well, such beings don't exist because we haven't observed them is crass foolishness. It's like the ant... He doesn't know. You can be standing right next to you, or the ant can even be in your body. He doesn't know there are such beings as humans, even if he's on the body of a human. So it would be more intelligent and to accept that there are living beings on a higher platform of knowledge, and to take knowledge from them. Actually, the beginning of knowledge is humility. begins with humility, but they begin with the puffed up idea that we can know everything by ourselves. We can improve our condition by our own ideas. And the actual symptom of knowledge is, is humility also. One can only acquire knowledge if, if one is humble. Uh, and the result of getting knowledge is that one will become more humble. Someone who is actually learned has some per- some perception of how much he doesn't know. He has more perception of how much he doesn't know. More than the person who's not learned. What we don't know is always going to be far more than we do know. So why become proud and think that we can know everything by ourselves? So, uh, getting back to this... Uh, terribly written uh, tract. Rather, the understanding of various social phenomena is developed through human experience and experience. Oversized ends. Relativism. Krishna consciousness is the absolute truth. There's no absolute truth in the scientific method. There is relativism. 
relativism is that principle of the scientific method whereby the results of scientific investigation are never considered permanent or absolute truths. At least they admit they don't know. Scientific, the scientific method, yeah, well, if they admit that they don't know, then why do they call it knowledge and teach it to others? In fact, whatever you're taught at school is going to be wrong because they're always updating, they call it updating their knowledge, which means they're always getting a different perspective on what they consider to be reality. And whatever the, the general consensus is among scientists, because they don't all agree with each other by any means, on anything, <coughs> uh, whatever they think is right now, it doesn't reach the school books till a few years later. So that whatever you're learning at school is already not scientific. In other words, they're damn well cheating you. And they call it science and knowledge. And anyone know, you go, if you study, like for instance, engineering or anything in college, you know it's useless. Because by the time you get out, even, even at the time you're studying it, it's not relevant to the modern world because they're always changing their theories and they call it progress. And guess what? For all their improving their engineering or whatever, still bridges collapse. So, it can never be perfect, their knowledge. And bridges collapse means something wrong with their engineering. They didn't, they didn't factor in everything all the different factors. So, getting back to the relativistic uh, propositions. Further advances in knowledge may refute or reject the established notions or views of our social environment. So you see, the very definition of what they call knowledge is the latest speculation. It's not knowledge at all. Prabhupada always pointed this out, that knowledge is... You can't, it's not subject to change. If it's actually a fact, then it's a fact, it's a fact, it's a fact. But what they call knowledge is something which some people who call themselves scientists, uh, they, among themselves, by consensual agreement or whoever, actually in science there's so much politics, so it may be the one who gets his, manages to get his theory promoted more than others, and whoever gets their theory promoted more than others, is uh, that's considered knowledge. There's not knowledge. It never can be knowledge, because Brahm Pramad, Vipra, Lipsa, Karana, Patap. These are the four defects of human beings. They're, they're subject to, to make mistakes. They're illusion. They have imperfect senses. And they have a cheating propensity. So you can never get proper knowledge. And at least they... At least they admit that to, the, to themselves, but they promote it in human society as if it is actual knowledge. Although you can see here, privately among themselves, they indirectly admit that it's not knowledge at all. But they think it's knowledge. By relatives, by relativism, relativism in the scientific method, means that no notions are sacred. No, except that everything's relative. That's sacred. They won't accept anything absolute. 
See, they're contradicting themselves. Right. No propositions are privileged. Relativism, it's privileged over absolutism. It's all... You see, this is at the very core of what they call the scientific method is uh, there are uh, logical contradictions, which means that it's the very foundations are not sound at all. They say relativism is a, is a prerequisite for the scientific method, and in relativism, no notions are sacred, but relativism itself is sacred. So it's self-defeating. But they're so blind, they can't see this. No truths are absolute to the scientist. Our views about social reality are tentative and have only a relative credibility via V or in relation to our past understanding of the social world. So again, they're making the human being or particularly the social scientist or the scientist is the arbiter of reality for the rest of humans. We have to, we have to, we're supposed to accept what they say. And they expect you to accept it. And the government gives them millions of pounds of your money to, uh, to make research. To, to bring, and they force you to go to school to, to learn all this stuff. Our understanding of a social phenomenon is subject to change on the, on the face of fresh and more sound evidence. Listen to this, this is a classic. Scientifically speaking, a proposition or argument is valid or true for a period until it is refuted in the future. So they they expect it to be refuted. And they call it knowledge and they call it science. Therefore, they are all rascals. No, Nobody knows any absolute truth. They don't accept that there could be any absolute truth then why on earth would devotees want to subject themselves to all this nonsense? And why do they want to import it into the, into the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which is giving the actual truth? The, the problem is that then devotees, they want, instead of accepting Shastra truth as actual truth, which it is, they'll accept all this mumbo-jumbo. And and philosophy as the truth. Then what's then why have this gone at all? Just you know, convert all our centers into colleges or whatever. Mundane colleges. Well I guess that's what's going on. Then uh, another point, ethical neutrality. This is similar to objectivity. The scientific method demands that a social scientist maintains an ethically neutral attitude in his pursuit of knowledge. In his professional capacity, in India they didn't get into this, his, his or her stuff yet. So in, in his professional capacity, he is not supposed to take science. You see, already he took science. He's sexist. See? Most of the uh, manpower or woman power in uh, the social sciences... In India, I don't know, I think it's mostly women. They call it man, man power or womanhood, woman power or whatever. He's not supposed to take sides on issues of moral or ethical nature. Well, that's the main, that's one of the main things that Shastra does, right? It tells us what is right and what's wrong. 
There is, in other words, for them there's no ultimate right or wrong. And as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Pravritin cha nevritin cha janana vidurahasuraha. Those who do not know what is to be done and do, do not know what is not to be done, such persons are called asuras or demons. Uh, he must remain over and above all religious, political or moral issues. You're just examining things in a with ethically neutral way. So, you know, nothing, it's all right, everything's okay. Because, yeah. Or you, at least you're supposed to think like that. If, you're, if you have your university cap on, you're supposed to think like that. Maybe you can take it off and put some tilak on. But the two things don't mix. So, for instance, uh, uh, you can examine the uh, spread or, or the uh, of the uh, phenomenon of homosexuality. And you're supposed to think, well, it's just another human trait. You see, it's just... It's, we can't say it whether... It's good or bad. So indirectly you're saying it's acceptable. There is no ethical neutrality because if you're neutral towards something, then you accord it a level of acceptability. So ethical neutrality is it's another uh, logical contradiction. And that's actually going on in our movement at the present time, as you may know, that uh, if we have any gay rights supporters here, then uh, they're probably not happy with what I'm saying, but uh, that's going on, that uh, homosexuality should be considered just quite acceptable within national society. Yeah, you're going like that, but the way it's going within our society, if, if no one speaks against this, and the kids are raised in the schools believing that, and no one speaks against it within us, and they come to us and they think, they, they think the same thing. So, if you don't speak against it, then our devotees will be contaminated by these demoniac ideas. The scientific method reserves silence on normative questions. Normative questions means... Uh, Questions of how we should train and teach people to act in human society. So we're, we're ethically neutral. But Krishna Krishnakosha is not ethically neutral. There is right. Meat eating or animal slaughter, this is sinful. Illicit sex, which means a sexual activity outside of marriage or even within marriage which is not meant for procreation specifically meant for procreation this is sinful gambling is sinful uh, intoxication is sinful watching TV is nonsense and all this stuff. eating food which is not offered to Krishna is sinful so we are by no means ethically neutral but if one is to ad- adopt the secular academic method, one has to start thinking in a manner which is quite different to that of devotees.
Now, the next point of the scientific method. Skepticism. Don't have faith in anything. Uh, that's what it means. So, this is again self-defeating, because if you have, if you take skepticism as a premise, then you have faith in skepticism. No one is totally faithless. Everyone has some faith. Otherwise you couldn't breathe. You might think it was someone uh, unseen, someone just injected some poisonous gas in the air, so I should give it a chemical test before I breathe it. And you won't, then you'll die. We have faith. When we walk, we have faith that the earth will support us. So we, we live on faith. Everything we do is based on faith. There's no such thing as not having any faith. So skepticism is self-defeating. If you say, I don't believe in any, I don't believe anything. Then you have to ask that person, do you believe what you just said? Then? Then you're caught, right? So skepticism, to, to have faith in skepticism, again, it's self-defeating. All of this is hypocritical. So, whereas we say that, yes, we should have, it, we should have faith in a, in a transcendental reality beyond that which is, uh, which we can touch, taste, smell, feel, and hear with our mundane senses and conceive of with our mundane intelligence. This is faith in a transcendental reality, and that is revealed to persons who pursue the transcendental method, as is empirically seen in the lives of uh, great saintly devotees, who, by their detachment from matter and attachment to Krishna, they demonstrate that there is a higher reality. They're not attracted, as ordinary people are, to the objects of the senses. They're not attracted to them for sense gratification. So that in itself is a proof of transcendental reality. But the scientific skeptical method presupposes that a social scientist must have the willingness or capacity to doubt the validity of existing social theories. You must doubt everything. Doubt Shastra, doubt Prabhupada, doubt Krishna consciousness. You, you have to bring doubt to everything. So doubt has its place, but mis just as misplaced faith is uh, gets one in a lot of trouble, so misplaced doubt does also. One should know. One should have the intelligence to believe in that which is worth believing in, and to doubt that which is should not be believed in. So that that requires some intelligence. Hmm. Mahajano yena gata sapanta. One should find a perfect person and follow that person. But then if you doubt everyone and everything, then you can't make any progress. Then you're stuck. Even materially, you can't learn anything unless you have faith that the teacher can teach you something. So, doubt everything. Doubts, they can be cleared with the help of observable evidence. The problem with observable evidence is that well, in the scientific method, something is considered a law if it's uh, if the experiment if the experimental results can be reproduced. But experiments have shown that experimental results cannot always be reproduced. The, to give a very simple example, if uh, at standard pressure and stand, uh, 
one boils distilled water, or heats distilled water, it should boil at 100 Celsius, right? If all the other factors are uh, 